Hey there, I'm Ange McCormack. This summer, we're featuring our favourite episodes of Read This, Schwartz Media's weekly podcast about the books we love and the stories behind them. Today, host Michael Williams visits iconic Australian author Kate Grenville at her home to talk about her latest book, Restless Dolly Maunder. If you love Read This as much as we do, you can subscribe or follow Read This on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Michael with Kate Grenville. I always hate the second ring. It's like you're being impatient. We're at Kate Grenville's house. I first met Kate nearly 20 years ago as a junior publicist. Hello, hello. So nice to see you. Thank you so much for having us. I got to trail along behind her as she toured, promoting her best-selling novel, The Secret River. I'd carry snacks in one hand, sticky notes for signing cues in the other. I already revered her as an author. Idea of Perfection was one of my favourite novels. So it was an exercise in pretending to be a professional while privately losing my mind at being around a literary hero. In bookshops and festivals, I'd watch her weave these extraordinary stories about Australia's colonial history for readers. And each time, it sounded like the story had just occurred to her. I learned these spiels about the book off by heart and enjoyed making her laugh, repeating arcane historical facts and faux spontaneous writerly detail on command. Um, I was thinking about slush lamps on the way here. <laughs> Who could forget slush lamps? <laughs> um, it's uh, indelible. I could almost, I could almost do the slush word lamps for word, piece. including the, the little pretend hesitation. <laughs> I also firsthand saw how literary success can lead to unwanted, even bad faith readings of a work. The Secret River was a massive hit, but Kate also caught backlash from historians who took issue with the fictionalizing of history. The more readers and more accolades the book attracted, the more spiky the responses from academics. But in the intervening years, Kate has doubled down. Her whole focus since has been on bringing history to life. She weaves national history with her own personal history, using the lives of her own family to tell stories about the kinds of voices who are often left out of the official record. She's done it with her great-grandparents, with her mum, and now, in her most recent book, it's her grandma's turn. All this mining of her family's history has Kate preparing for the chance that someday someone's going to rifle through her life and make up their own stories. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams with Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Did you always feel a responsibility to the historical record when you were mining history? Absolutely. Uh, where I played fast and loose with it, which I certainly did in Joan Mack's history, uh, for example, I had in Joan Mack's history, the first white person to set foot on this continent was in fact a woman. Now, I think that's probably highly unlikely, uh, but it was so clearly a playful invention, I didn't feel bad about altering that. I think we do have a responsibility which is very different from the historian's responsibility, either to indicate very clearly that we have invented something or are playing around with it very explicitly, or else use it in such a way that the specific is standing in for something bigger. In other words, as I did in The Secret River, use actual historical events, but slightly change their time and their place. So, you know, 10 years later, 
20 kilometres away. That seemed to me a legitimate thing because it had it had happened. Uh, I was not making up the event. I was placing it within the context of my fictional structure, which is tricky and that got me into a lot of trouble and perhaps it should have, but it's what I did and it, uh, it brought the book to readers, so I can't regret it. In fact, it brought the subject to readers and I can't regret that. The trouble you're alluding to... I mean, I don't want to pin it all on one historian, but uh, Inga Glendinen took particular issue with the Secret River. And at the time, I remember thinking, and I still think this, being so saddened by that and kind of frustrated by that because her book about first contact, Dancing with Strangers, and the Secret River seemed like two pieces of a puzzle and two really important and simpatico pieces, it seemed to me. And it... It shocked me that historians felt territorial about what you were doing in the Secret River. Look, it shocked me too, and it, it bamboozled me because I had be, I had been expecting attacks about the Secret River, but I was expecting it from right-wing people like Keith Winshuttle. So, you know, like Singapore in 1942, my guns were all facing the wrong way. So when Inga attacked from my side, it did astonish me and actually it still does. I still don't understand what her problem was in a funny way. Um, it made me think a lot about what I was doing writing about history um, and where my responsibilities as a novelist began and ended. I think once you put a novel on the title page, some of your responsibility has been clarified. Um Look, it was a bad patch, I have to say. Do you still feel bruised by it? Perhaps the answer is yes, because I find myself now at this stage of my life thinking I've never actually had the chance to address some of those things. I feel a bit unheard and unvoiced, and I should have just moved on, but of course the culture hasn't moved on. Every time I do an interview about any book, this situation always comes up. So one of the things I'm doing at the moment is collecting all that stuff, putting it in a folder, got it on my desk at the moment, and I will give it to the State Library, and at some stage someone will find it. And if they ignore it, that's okay. And the funny thing is, having put it all together, I feel relieved of it. I feel I, I, feel I have been heard, even though it's by some unknown person in the future who, who will come across all these papers. I feel bad dredging it up again and being a cliche like every other interviewer, but partly because I was lucky enough to kind of be working at your publishers when The Secret River came out and and seeing that, but also because your work has consistently, both before The Secret River but definitely since, been about giving voice to the unheard or the unvoiced. And so the fact that you feel that yourself seems to me to be... Um, have particular resonance, that you're aware of being on the receiving end of that treatment by history, <laughs> um, and so your project is kind of rectifying that for others? Yes, although, as you say, my desire to write about that, like Joan Makes History, which the project of that was to put the women back into Australian history, so again, putting giving voice to the voiceless. So that predated any of this kerfuffle about the historians, which I suppose is why... Perhaps a perhaps another writer could have just shrugged all that off and said, as I was constantly advised to say to myself, oh, they're just jealous. They wish they sold as many copies as you did. 
Uh, people constantly told me that, and for some reason it just didn't help. I was thinking in the context of your work about the Secret River as a kind of inflection point, that mm. history was a feature before then, but since then it has been the kind of defining engine of your writing. Mm. Do you see it in those terms? Yes. My earlier books were often about the past as well, um, but it was, a, it was a past that was not yet political, whereas at the point when I wrote The Secret River, and probably because I was picking up you know, from the culture the fact that it was suddenly on the agenda, uh, it took on a very overtly uh, political thing. And that's uh, obviously when people start to have strong feelings. So look, I think it was an inflection point in the sense that my interior drama of working through those subjects suddenly met the public drama. Would you characterise your writing as having an actively political energy to it? I think in the sense that you write out of who you are, uh, to that extent, yes, in the same way that my books have a have a feminist um, objective, because that's who I am, and I write out of my experience as a woman, which of course is where my voicelessness comes from, uh, that experience of being um, not heard or misheard uh, is the experience of women of my generation. You have to trust that because you are part of your moment in history, your work is going to reflect all that stuff without, without you having to labour it. And if you do labour it, it's probably not going to work terribly well as a novel. I think, because I don't read much historical fiction, I find it wears its research too heavily at the expense of kind of character and story in a way that just alienates me or annoys me. And I love your historical novels. Absolutely love them. And I was trying to think about, on the way over here, I was trying to think about why that is. And I think the thing I kept coming back to is the word play. Like, there is a playfulness, right back to Joe Makes History, but there's respect for the historical record, but there is a a willingness to to not completely absent yourself from the retelling. Look, I don't read historical fiction either. I think what you said about wearing its research heavily is perhaps the key to it. I'm only invested in history in the sense that I know this is a technique that works for me. History gives me a way of talking about what I know without talking about me. So I don't have any kind of political thing about history, just that for me, it works as a way of opening up human behaviour in its widest sense and just not coming to any conclusions about it. I never come to any conclusions about anything, I don't think. But simply turning it round as you might, or walking around it as you might walk around a, um, a piece of sculpture to see all its different angles. And that fascinates me. The other thing that works so passionately well for me as a, as a sort of, uh, as a practice, as a writer, is doing the research. It seems to me that I'm not actually all that interested in making things up, and I'm probably not very good at it. I have attempted once or twice. Uh, what I love is to take a, a kind of skeletal body of uh, what you might call facts or factoids and burrow into that in a way that then explodes out into much wider questions about, you know, human nature, really, how we get on as social creatures, both with ourselves and with each other. After the break, Kate applies her historian's research and her novelist's empathy to find out who her own grandmother really was.
For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for, please. <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah, this. If, yeah, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Kate Grenville has been drawing from her family's history for her writing ever since she published The Secret River back in 2006. Her latest novel, Restless Dolly Maunder, digs into the life of her grandmother. Kate uses her novelist's power of empathy to get past the scary, cranky woman she remembers, complicating the story of who Dolly Maunder really was, or who she may have been. My mother left a lot of memoirs in which she told me the outline of my grandmother's life, that is, Dolly Maunder's life. So I knew the events fairly thoroughly. Um, And I also knew my mother's opinion of her mother, which was that her mother was a bullying, dominating, even perhaps slightly mad, Mum said at one stage. So I had that stuff, but in order to write about her, I had to get beyond both of those things. First of all, I had to know not just what happened to her, and that was interesting enough and representative enough of her generation, Um, but I had to know what she thought and felt about it. So, for example, when she was 14, the day she left school, she went home and said to her father on their sort of struggling farm, her father was illiterate, her mother was probably marginally literate, Uh, Dolly was one of the first in her family to ever have any education. She went home and she said to her father, I want to become a teacher, so uh, will you please write a letter that says I can be a pupil teacher, which was the way you became a teacher in those days. And her father said, over my dead body, over my dead body, any woman in my family goes out to work because it would shame him. It would suggest that uh, he couldn't support his family. Okay, so I know that happened. Mum even had those words over my dead body, which her mother had obviously told her to the point where my mother remembered it. How would you feel at age 14 knowing that the one thing you really wanted to do and the only possible destiny for a woman that was other than just getting married and having babies, that one little door in the culture had been slammed in your face? How would that feel? So that's that's actually in many ways where this book started. Because I could imagine that, as someone who has really enjoyed teaching, I could imagine Dolly realising that this was what she was made to do, and her father said no. So what did she do? Yes, but more than that, what did she feel? Are you ever tempted to embroider for the purposes of story? No, it's funny. I think I like the challenge of having the fact, and I think that's the other charm of working from the historical. And when you have a fact... You normally have a couple of other facts that don't fit. That's and for me, that's the that's the kind of grit in the oyster that makes the fiction happen. So to invent something would be boring to me because it would so it would simply solve the problem. It would simply slice through the pearl 
Um, whereas to actually work with what you've been given, uh, I find that fantastically interesting. Yeah, it's why I write, actually. It's having a problem. It's having a having something you don't understand, or even more, in the case of history, usually two things that are contradictory that you definitely don't understand, and they appear to both be true. So the marvellous challenge then is to think, okay, this really happened, and this really happened. I'm not making them up. So there must be a way, there must be a frame, a plausible frame that you can put around it. If you can step back far enough, you will find a frame within which those two things fit together. I mean, I sometimes think what I've been doing with a lot of my books to trawl through my family history, a bit like drinking your own bathwater, a little bit on the narcissistic side, but actually, I'm convinced that this is true. These people were representative. My grandmother, for example, she would be, have been one of probably millions of women. In fact, in many parts of the world, it would still be happening that a woman could go home and say to her father, I want to do X, and he would say no, and that would be that. So it's a sense of them being uh, representative that makes it worthwhile. I just happen to have the lucky chance that mum left enough that I can construct their story, whereas most people, you know, births and deaths and maybe a, a recipe for pumpkin scones, but not that bed of detail that you actually need to tell a story properly. Nobody knows better than Kate Grenville the power of words left behind when somebody dies. It's why she started documenting her own life, collecting her papers thumbing through old notebooks and creating her own historical record, one that she can hand down to her children and grandchildren. When my mother used to tell me all her stories about her childhood, I glazed over. I was really rude, and I deeply regret it now. Uh, fortunately, she, she, she ignored my glazing over and told me anyway. But I think that it, you have to have lived a certain amount of life, a certain number of things have to have happened to you, and you have to have thought about them, gone through the mill a bit, basically, before you can actually take it on board and sort of do anything with it. That process of trying to document and trying to gather your own papers and your own records, thinking about what the record holds and, and keeping it straight, are you writing into that? Are you, are you finding as part of the gathering that material, you're, whether it's through diaries or whether it's through other stuff, given that writing is the way that you make sense of the world, is that something you're doing with your own story? Not for the public. Um, a while ago, my son said to me, look, there are lots of bits of your life that I don't know about. Would you just sort of jot down, you know, just, and he, he made, he, he was at pains to say, it doesn't need to be very long, mum, uh, just, just the outline. <laughs> well, of course, once you sit down and you start writing about particularly the good bits of your life, of which I have had more than I deserve, um, it pours out. And that's been a huge pleasure. And it's, it's a pleasure all the greater because I know that the only people who are going to read it are my son and my daughter. And hopefully they will feel the same way I did reading my mother's memoirs, just incredibly glad to have this little window into your mother as a person, um, which can probably only happen, you know, through a bit of writing, with a bit of distance, I think. I have no desire to write a, an autobiography, um, Actually, I shouldn't say that because there is a, I have a couple of gleams in my eye. It's not an autobiography, 
But um, look, I, anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. Oh, self-censoring, oh. Kate Granville. <laughs> yep. That's that, the, the, the podcaster intake of breath. Oh, here, we're going to get something. No, by all means, have a sip of your coffee. Think again about whether you want to hurry into an answer. <laughs> You're talking to me at an interesting moment because I've never thought about doing any of this stuff before. But, you know, 72, suddenly time is finite. So I'm still trying to work out exactly what I'm doing, exactly what I, what I want to do. And frankly, I don't know. And it's quite an interesting puzzle. And since I don't have to make any decisions about it, I hope I don't get knocked down by a bus tomorrow. I hope that I find my way to some, you know, some good place. But no, the, sh the short answer is that I don't know. When I found myself writing the document that I'm writing for Tom and Alice, it's now like 30,000 words long. So I don't know where that's going. And I'm enjoying it hugely because I'm writing without inhibition and I'm writing as if I'm speaking to them. And, and of course, you know, the writer in me thinks, oh, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that idea of a gleam in your eye, do you have notepads where you're like, here's a concept, here's an idea, here's a thing? Do they all come to fruition? Do they do they surprise you when they pop up again? Yeah, they, well, many of them don't come to fruition. Uh, one of the things I'm doing here is actually I've just typed out a lifetime of scrappy notes on bits of paper because I have a feeling that there are, and there are gleams in my eye that as I type them out, I think, oh, that could work. I could put that with that and then I'd have that. Again, it's mathematics, isn't it? Um, so looking back at kind of a lifetime of, um, kind of observations. It's not a journal. It's not like Helen Garner's at all. It's it's observations about, you know, how the light's falling on that tree. Um, typing out a lifetime's worth of those is wonderfully interesting. And I think, yeah, perhaps there's um, perhaps there's life in the old girl yet. <laughs> perhaps there is another book. <laughs> in my long experience, Kate Grenville always acts like there might not be another book. And happily, thankfully, that's never proven to be true. Kate's latest novel, Restless Dolly Maunder, is out now. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Before we go, just the one recommendation from me this week, because it's a big one. Paul Murray's The Beasting is on the long list for this year's Booker Prize. He's an Irish novelist. His earlier novels include the wonderful Skippy Dies, but with The Beasting, he goes to the next level. It's in some ways a climate change novel, a novel of financial hardship, but at its core, it's the story of a family in Dublin, and it is my favourite thing I've read in a very long time. I'm not doing predictions. I'm not saying it will win the Booker, but God, it should. You should read it. You can find it and all the other books we mentioned today at your favourite independent bookstore. Or if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books. That's apple.co slash read this. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends, rate, review us, share us. Put us out there everywhere. We love it. Read This is produced by Clara Ames and edited by Sarah McVie. Original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher and mixing by Travis Evans. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>